0: Good morning everyone, nice to see you all, I missed you all last week, even though Mary is so good, I love Mary. So glad that she was able to cover for me and I'm glad to see you all today. A few housekeeping things before we get started. We are still relatively early on in our spring semester. And so if you have not gotten your schedule for the spring, please grab a bookmark on your way out, throw these in your Bibles. So you know when we will and will not meet and when we meet, what we will be covering, which chapters to read ahead of time, right? To read ahead of time, that's right. I have a few questions from last week, or from two weeks ago, and so we'll cover those in one second, but a reminder that not everyone who comes to this study goes to St. Michael. I see some familiar faces, but perhaps that don't worship here on Sundays, and so if you do not know someone near you, then make sure you introduce yourself. There is nothing comfortable about coming somewhere by yourself and sitting by yourself and not having anyone talk to you and then leaving by yourself. That's not good. And so if you don't know a person, then they probably don't know you either. So introduce yourself. It's really okay. Everyone is forgiven for not remembering someone's name. So before you leave, say hi to someone you don't know and make a new friend. Let's open with a prayer and we will jump in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together on this Wednesday morning and we ask that you help us to put down all those things which weigh on us, that worry us, that cause us anxiety. Help us put those things away and make some space for your spirit to fill us up. Enter us, give us peace, give us inspiration, shake us from the inside and help us as we learn more and more about what you have done in the past, to help us be a part of the work of your future. Be with all those who cannot be here today, especially those who need your healing touch, that your presence will help heal them in body, mind, and spirit. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last week you all looked at chapter 20. This week we're gonna be looking at chapters 21 and 22. So let's take a look at the scope of this week's lesson. We are talking about primarily the sacrifice of Isaac. So for chapters 21 and two, we have three parts. I'm sorry, four parts. The first part is the call for the sacrifice. So the call to sacrifice. The second part is the sacrifice. The third part is what I effectively am gonna call the provision, but it's the stopping of the sacrifice, and then part four is Sarah's death. We'll close with Sarah's death. So to begin, we have effectively come to the point where Isaac is on the scene, right? Last week, you should have finished the story of where Ishmael goes, right? So Abraham has these two sons, Ishmael, being born from Hagar, and Ishmael is the inspiration, the root, the connection point for the Muslim people, right? So we have these Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and for Muslims, they root themselves back to Abraham through Ishmael. Ishmael, although the firstborn was not a son of Sarah. And so there's always this tension between Ishmael and Isaac. Well, we assume tension between Ishmael and Isaac. I suppose that the real tension is between Sarah, and Hagar, and which son is going to be the son who receives, you know, becomes the heir of Abraham's whatever, of Abraham's promise, of Abraham's stuff, of their tent, of their, uh, you know, livestock, all of the above. And so ultimately, Hagar and Ishmael get pushed out. So that'll happen last week. This week, We are left now with what appears to be a relatively clean slate, right? Now we're good. Here is Abraham and Sarah, Sarah's own son, Isaac. No one else is left to get in the way, so Isaac really should be the one who becomes the heir. These promises that God has made to Abraham, so many of these grand, big promises should now flow directly to Isaac, except, We get in the beginning of chapter 21, God asks for an odd thing. So let's turn to chapter 21. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong chapter. Chapter 22. I wrote it wrong on my notes. Look at that. Chapter 22. All that stuff I said about chapter 20, that's 21. Now we are in chapter 22. So turn to chapter 22, verse 1. Chapter 22, verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham. God said to Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. All right, we're gonna pause there. This is the call to the sacrifice. God just out of nowhere says, all right, take your son, your only son, that's not true, the son you love, he certainly loved Ishmael as well, and take Isaac to this other place away from your house, and you will offer him. That really does mean kill him. This is a sacrifice. In this moment, God calls for the sacrifice, And we should, if we have been tracking this whole story, wonder what in the world is happening right now. Because God has made multiple promises to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah have gone through multiple ups and downs where lots of things could have gotten in the way, including her being barren. And even with Ishmael on the scene, Ishmael is now gone. I mean, everything seems teed up just right for the promise to be passed all the way to Isaac and then God, for no seeming reason at all, says, I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac. In this moment, there is some language that mirrors the call that God put to Abraham at the very beginning of this story. So when God says, go to the land of Moriah, there is a phrase here in the Hebrew that is used only one other time in the entire Bible. And that is when God says, go to the land, at the very beginning when Abraham leaves his family and goes south down into what today is Israel. There is a direct correlation to this moment calling for the sacrifice and the moment when God called Abraham to leave his family and to move down into the land of Canaan, it should not be disconnected from that original call. Abraham was living with his family. Remember, the entire clan left Terah, and left Ur with Terah, and moved to what was likely northern Iraq, that kind of area. And they all stopped, but God said Abraham needed to keep going. That's when Lot and Abraham kind of fork off. Lot goes to a different place. Abraham goes far south into Canaan, and when he gets to Canaan, people are already living there, which means he's got to go a little bit farther south and settle in an area that is not easy to live in, right? You cannot grow things where Abraham has been living, which is why they begin to raise livestock. That's the one thing that can be done in an area where you can't grow plants, So Abraham has already committed himself to God, done something that was very hard, extremely vulnerable and risky, which is leaving his family and going to this area, which is effectively the desert and making it work. Now God is saying the same phrase, go and do this thing, go to this land and do that thing. That seems crazy. Leaving his family, that was crazy. This is not like going over to Atlanta and finding a hotel, okay? This is scarier than that, which is scary enough. This is leaving your family means you are now exposed. It was almost certain that Abraham would not have made that work, but he did. Now, all of the promises God has made is rested in this one son. And God's calling him to kill the son Now there is a little note here where it says in verse one, God tested Abraham. Why is this story being told? Remember our context. The story is being written when the Israelites are in exile in Babylon. They are asking that one big question, why do bad things happen? What did we do wrong? How did we go astray? How did God let us be taken out of our homeland? God had promised all these things, everything had come true, and then all of a sudden it was wiped away and they're in exile. There is a sense for the Israelites that they failed the test. So as they begin to tell these ancient stories, they will tell all of these stories under the umbrella of being tested. And so it is not an accident that they literally wrote, God tested Abraham. Because for them, Abraham epitomizes the faithfulness that they had lost. And in a way, they are beginning to tell the story of who they want to be again, right? At some point in the past, they were faithful. They did pass God's tests. Then they failed, but they don't want to keep failing. They want to begin to pass these tests. They want to get back into God's good favor. They want to get back to the land God had promised them to make things right, and that causes them to create the legal structure around their tradition that then Jesus enters into. But as they tell these stories, the idea that they put their own patriarchs to the test makes sense because they need to be able to tell the story of how they too, even though they had failed, could actually pass the tests of faith in the future. Does that make sense? Why I say all that is because it is important for us to keep in mind one important question. Is God doing this? It is fine if we want to believe that God literally told Abraham, go kill your son. I want us though to be able to hold in tension this idea that the story the Israelites are telling in exile may not be literally the story as it happened. Something happened and this story was written. But when this story was written, you were talking about a thousand years between this moment and when the story is written. We cannot play telephone down these two pews and get the same story at the end. So just put that into context, right? That there's a lot of people telling a lot of stories over and over and over again before this one gets written down. So one of the common questions is why would God do this? Why would God want this? Why would God tell Abraham? Okay, good questions, but let's ask a better question. Why are the Israelites telling the story this way? Why would the Israelites want to characterize God this way? To what end are they trying to reach? You can't stand there the whole time. Come on in. Nope. Come on in. That is the call to the sacrifice. So let's jump into the sacrifice itself. Verse 3, 22, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire, I'm sorry, carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac "'laid him on the altar on top of the wood. "'Then Abraham reached out his hand "'and took the knife to kill his son.'" In this section, I think it is okay for us to say, this is nuts, right? It's horrible in so many ways. I mean, what I always, what strikes me in this passage, because obviously we know the story, right? it always hits me when he has Isaac carry the stuff. I mean, that to me is just, the whole situation here is terrible, right? It is not enough that Abraham would consent to sacrificing his son. He's having his son carry all the stuff for the sacrifice. It's, It's horrible. There are a number of important ideas to unpack here. The first is let's talk about Abraham's reaction to God when God calls for this sacrifice. Think back just a few chapters ago when God said he was going to destroy something else, Sodom, what did Abraham do? Abraham prayed and then began to debate God, right? So God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom. They're bad people. And Abraham said, well, hold on. What if he found 50 people? 50 good people in Sodom. Would you spare the whole city? Yes, I'd spare the whole city. How about 45, right? And so Abraham begins to make this deal, and he deals smaller and smaller and smaller, effectively saving Sodom from destruction. There is nothing from Abraham in this story about trying to save Isaac. There is no moment where Abraham says, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? You know, I mean, just like, I'm, Say it one more time, or can you clarify, or how about a couple lambs, right? How about my best lamb? You know, how, can, is there any sort of dealing here with God in any way? Nothing. The way this story is told, Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac, he does. If this was the only moment where something like that happens in the story, maybe that's just Abraham's character. We know it's not. Abraham has multiple times, in particular the moment with Sodom, shown that he has a relationship with God. He's not simply taking orders, he is in conversation with God. So where then is the conversation in this moment? I think it's interesting to note that Abraham's character here is 100% submissive, right? Abraham's just doing what God says. I believe the Israelites are telling the story in this way to really show Abraham's faithfulness. That is the point, right? This story, although for us, Isaac plays a big role. I'll speak for myself. I'll use I language. For me, Isaac matters in this story, right? He is the boy who is about to be killed. But if we really look at the way the story is structured, This has nothing to do with Isaac. This is everything to do with Abraham and with God. Isaac happens to be the one that is being acted upon, but he is a total bystander. This is about what Abraham does when God commands him to do something that is so counterintuitive to everything that is our human condition, and then Abraham's response, which is 100% faithful. That is the point of the story. Abraham, his faithfulness is really the key to why the story is told the way it is told. For us, it's important to ask what we think of this. We, especially us in America, right? I mean, look, 21st century affluent Americans, we would never, do something that we thought we shouldn't do just because someone told us. I mean, we are actually most often the kind of people where the fastest way to get us not to do a thing is to tell us to do that thing, right? I mean, we tend to be almost contrarian by nature in the sense that if we're told to go line up over there, most of us will just say, excuse me, why? Right, I mean, why do I have to do it that way in this format, we we don't like being patient, we don't even like waiting. So for us, this is a wildly counterintuitive story. Not only would we not sacrifice our child, we wouldn't even just do almost anything we're told to do. So then what can this story teach us? I think faithful, blind, Faith is something that we struggle with because, to give us the benefit of the doubt, perhaps we believe that God is relational and that God doesn't just simply command that god wants the interaction wants the reciprocation i think most of our christian theological foundation is about this idea that god loves and calls for us to love in return god does not command that love the reciprocation matters our relationship with god matters and so we're not really as christians submitting ourselves to just doing what we are told actually we've created a whole theological structure around our intentional chosen response to god that really matters to us this story sounds a lot more legal it sounds a lot more jewish or muslim right we we've talked very shallowly in here before about the difference between Judaism and Islam. They are legal practice based religions. Christianity is doctrinal belief based religion. It is much less important in Christianity what you do and much more important what you believe. Now that's classic Christian theology. I can take issue with that in nuanced ways, but that is really where Christianity differs from Judaism and Islam. This story sounds a lot more legal. It does not really matter what you believe, it matters what you do. And if you are told to do a thing, you do that thing. Whether you want to or not, the important thing is you did it. That kind of story is difficult for us because it's not how we define ourselves as people of faith. Mm. I think I want to stop there or else I'll just keep talking. Any any questions so far? Because obviously we've done part one and two and there's a third part to the story, so we're going to get there. But before we get to the third part, any questions or desire for a little bit more to be said about a particular facet of what we've discussed so far? Okay, let's go to part three. Part three is the provision. We have had the call to the sacrifice, we've had the setup for the sacrifice, and we have every uh, reason to believe that Abraham is about to go through with this, right? There is no indication that Abraham was just faking it, or that Abraham expected that God would not actually go through with this. Abraham has set everything up. He has reached for his knife in order to kill his son. Part three, look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So let's talk about the specifics of this moment. An angel appears, stops the sacrifice. I mean, can you imagine the mid swing of the knife? Pause. And says, don't do what you are planning to do because you've proven you would. Here instead is a ram. So make the sacrifice to God, but do not sacrifice your son. So, in a sense, the way the story is structured, Abraham passed the test. That was what was most important. Again, Isaac is not a factor here right? Whether Isaac lived or died was not the point of this story. The point is, would Abraham have sacrificed Isaac? Yes, says God, so you don't have to. (laughs) What in the world do you think the Israelites are trying to tell each other, and then of course us, about God's character when they tell a story this way? I am not certain if I would like this story more if Isaac had been sacrificed and Abraham had followed through with what God had said, because it almost it almost, in a sense, is worse that God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham went almost all the way through with it. I mean, to the point of binding Isaac, lifting the knife and coming toward him only to stop. That's almost worse, and I know it's not really worse because Isaac is alive, but in a sense, what does that do, how about this? What does that do to Isaac? Excuse me, right? <laughs> I mean, can you, can you put yourself in Isaac's position and say, so my dad has me carry the wood up to the sacrifice, and then we have Isaac say, hey dad, like, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, <laughs> don't worry, it'll be okay, psych, ties him up, and then he's gonna, and then literally the knife is coming, and then he's hearing the angel say, no, don't do that. Here, do this instead. So what does Abraham do? Untie him and say, here, help me with this sacrifice. I'm thinking Isaac is messed up forever because of this, right? I mean, this is seriously messes with his mind, right? But what if we think about it a different way? Let's think about sacrifice in general. How do people today sacrifice themselves for others? Think about the very thoughtful and intentional way that many, many people today set themselves up to potentially sacrifice themselves for other people. Think people in the military first responders, public safety officers. There are many people today, maybe not many in this room perhaps, but there are many people in and among us who are of total sound mind. And they make decisions to live a particular kind of life knowing that maybe odds are they won't die, but they very well could and they are very willing to put themselves in harm's way even to death in order to help save effectively other people, right? Why then couldn't Isaac be like one of them? Imagine Isaac and the way that he was raised. Here you have Abraham who has been talking to God for years receiving promises from God for years, finally receives this child that had been promised to him forever. What do you think Abraham has been telling Isaac since the first day he was born? that he's part of this promise, right? God made all these promises with me, my son, and you are the one to help fulfill these promises. Years and years of raising Isaac to believe that God has intended for something unique and special and amazing to happen through Abraham, and then presumably through Isaac. Would it be then possible that Isaac believed so much, in this purpose, that if God pivoted and said, actually, the promise has always been with Abraham and not necessarily with Isaac yet, and I'm intending something different than what you may have understood, which includes Isaac's death, isn't it possible that Isaac thoughtfully agreed to be the sacrifice that helps fulfill this huge, amazing cosmic purpose of God. Maybe. How old is Abraham? He's old, okay? <laughs> And you know, I, I, regularly, I regularly try not to say that certain ages are old. I try not to use that word. I'm pretty sure we can all say, once you cross a hundred, old is okay to say. I think we're all okay. Like if you made it to a hundred and you're like, good for you, good for you. Abraham's a hundred years old. Isaac's how old? Isaac's probably a teenager, right? He's probably what, 13-ish, 14 maybe. He's still a boy, but he's not a toddler. He's able to carry this heavy load up a mountain to set this up. He is not a weak little toddler. Do you think if Abraham tried to tie him up against his will, that 14-year-old could not have pushed that 100-year-old down the mountain? Okay? It is easy, I believe, to recast the story that Isaac is not perhaps the victim, but Isaac is, for all intents and purposes, a willing, intentional participant in this moment. And wouldn't that make sense? Think of Abraham's life, what he has done, how he has succeeded, how he has been cared for. He has talked with God, walked with angels, been able to have a baby at 90, Why then would this not be part of that story? It's easy for us to take this whole narrative and basically cast it aside as just a ridiculous story that makes no real sense, that was told for some purpose that does not seem relevant to anything that we do today. But I think that's discounting Isaac's participation. This is not just Abraham doing something that seems crazy. I think, or I will say the way I read this story is that Isaac is in it and Isaac is willing. Isaac is willing even unto death because there is a belief in God's intention and God's promise that is so, so strong that they have in essence no longer feared their own death. Ah, now what does this sound like? This kind of sounds like Jesus, right? We often do not understand what I think the most profound truth of Jesus really is. And that is what we hear in the Bible over and over and over again, which is do not be afraid. I mean, if we distill Jesus down to something super simple, it's don't worry, don't be afraid. Nothing, nothing, nothing that can happen to you here or happen to anyone you love will ever get in the way of God's grace and love and truth and completeness. Nothing, not even what? Death itself, nothing. Could we then understand that perhaps a very deep understanding of this particular story is their genuine commitment and understanding and faithfulness that not even death will actually separate them from God's promise, from God's truth and from God's fulfillment. It makes the story, I think, a lot more impactful to me if we begin to understand it in a way that takes it way deeper than just, here's a father sacrificing his son, but something that becomes much more conceivable for us. Because the world is very hard, and I rarely sit with people who are genuinely fearless in the face of death. I do occasionally, and it's very apparent. I can say, as someone who regularly, pretty much every week, is with some family, either anticipating or grieving the death of someone that they love, it is immediately apparent to me, without even speaking, which families are very well-formed and which families are not quite there yet. Because when a family accepts that death's just the next step, then there's a joy, there's a release. There is a hopefulness that overwhelms everything else. It does not mean not sad. They are not mutually exclusive. You can be sad and hopeful all the time. There is, though, a difference between being angry about death or being afraid of death and simply being sad. And that's a distinction that takes a long time to unpack and live into. It's not a choice that you can just make. It is a way of understanding yourself and your world that oftentimes families have not quite gotten there. Ooh. Man, you know what? <laughs> I don't get enough Moon River in my life, you know. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's right. That's right moon river. Man, now I'm going like all mythological, you know, with like the river crossing the river into the <laughs> heaven and the, all, okay. All right, all right, all right. Here we go. So yes, please. Oh, good question. Is the story of Isaac's sacrifice in the Quran? Yes, but it's, a, it's told differently. It is still, however, part of the faithfulness. So Uh, let me say uh, two more minutes on that. The Quran has the story of Abraham that uh, presents very prominently, um, obviously, because that is a kind of spiritual anchor, um, rootedness in God's promise. Isaac is absolutely there. The, the, The bones of the story are the same. Abraham has a wife named Sarah. God makes a promise, they will have lots of descendants. Sarah cannot bear a child. Hagar bears a child named Ishmael. Then Sarah gets pregnant, there's Isaac. All of that is there. What is much more filled out is the story of Ishmael. So one of the notes that is different about the Quran, so I wasn't with you last week, right? One of the notes that is different is in the Bible, there is the sense that Abraham doesn't really want Hagar and Ishmael to go, but agrees that they should go and then sends them on their way. And in a sense, kind of takes care of them a little bit. Like, here's, here's some stuff, you know, like here's some water, here's some food, you know, but, but kind of lets them go. In the Quran, the difference is, Abraham goes with them. That effectively, Abraham, The way the Quran story goes, Abraham gets it, right? Sarah is his first wife. Isaac is perhaps the one that God's going to use for now. But Abraham loves Ishmael. I mean, Ishmael is his first son. And so Abraham agrees that they should leave, but doesn't just send them out, takes them to where they will ultimately live. Effectively gets them set up, knows that they will be okay, and then goes back to Sarah and Isaac. So there's a little bit more care about Ishmael. It's not just the casting off. There is the separation. All of that is the same. So in this story, yes, there is the sacrificial story. It's told very similarly in the sense that it is really focused on Abraham's faithfulness. Um, Isaac is still not a player narratively in the story. Same thing, angel stops. Yeah. Uh It is the same thing. Um, If you've not, if you've not, if you're interested, it is super easy to read little portions of the Quran if you want to see how it compares. I find it fascinating to compare a few of the stories in the Quran, especially the story about Jesus. I mean, the, the longest, single story in the Quran is about Jesus. And the only book of the Quran named for a woman is the book of Mary as Jesus' mother. So, I mean, it's prominent. And the stories are similar, not the same. And so, a decent reader of the Bible would be able to pretty easily identify where the narrative is tweaked a little bit. and there are ripples of those tweaks for sure. But, like I said, kind of the spine or the skeleton of the story is pretty similar. I was just wondering if wrong. You, oh, you're talking about yeah. like a suicide? Yeah. And do they use no. These stories to, to, okay. No. Um, so this would not be a story used to validate suicide attacking of any kind. No, not the story. Okay, good question. So how about fear, not just faithfulness? So let's look back at what is literally written in the Hebrew. If you look at verse 12, when the angel appears to Abraham, what does the angel say? Now I know that you fear God. So yes, I think, I am for sure contextualizing this, right? Part of what I wanna do here is sort of twofold. The first is, I want you to know what is there. Right, I do want you to know what is actually there in the story, because there are, well, we'll start there. I want you to know what's there, what is and is not. And I want you to take what is there and begin to thoughtfully interpret it. This is key for us, because knowing the Bible is critical. Episcopalians do most of the time don't know the Bible. And so I want you to know what is there and what is not there, which, by the way, what is not there is almost most important because oftentimes people say, well, the Bible says, and I promise you, at least one out of every three times someone says the Bible says, I know that Bible does not say that. I mean, that was was like Dante or something, right? I mean, so (laughs) it's important to know what is and is not there. The other thing, though, is that this is all interpretive. You can absolutely interpret this story multiple different ways, and from a just rational perspective, the interpretations can be sound. This is a pretty simple story. You're talking about a few verses with very little dialogue, very little detail of action, which means the simpler the story, the easier it can be interpreted in many, many different ways. I want you to hear mine You do not need to agree with me, but I want to ask questions out loud that I ask myself to try and wrestle with how... My starting place when reading the Bible is that I can get something from it. When I read a story like this, it is harder because I do not know at first what i am supposed to get from this because i will tell you what i don't think i would do is agree to sacrifice my child okay so then what am i doing here right should i like it, we could easily read this que- read this passage and say should we be willing to do that that is when i think the context matters to make sure that we know who who was writing the story, when and where? Because I don't think the point is to convince people to be willing to sacrifice their children. That's actually not what, is, what they're attempting here. It really is about fear is okay. Fear and faithfulness is very similar. And then how one lives into what would be faithfulness of purpose. So for me, where I land is do not fear death. Death as the archetype of the great fear of our human condition, right? Well, if we don't have to fear death, then we don't have to fear anything else. And so if we're not fearing death anymore, then in a sense, the sacrifice no longer becomes the central action of this story, it's really about being willing to fearlessly do whatever we're called to do. It's still messy because I think every one of us, anyone who's ever had a child, right? You would, we talk about who, thoughtfully places themselves in situations where they may have to sacrifice for the good of others. And I think almost anyone who's had a child gets that they would do that for their child, right? Um, So I think there is something so, what is counterintuitive here is that the parents being told to sacrifice the child. If this story flipped itself, and Isaac was told to sacrifice Abraham, and then they went through the whole story to the point of about to do it, the angel stops them. To me, that story is actually different because then I can easily put myself in Abraham's shoes and say, if there was a point at which I thought somehow me giving myself up for my child was was supposed to happen, that at least makes sense. Like, I don't necessarily want to like throw myself on the, on the sword, but I get that. There's something more natural about a parent dying, right? Not a child. Um, this is unnatural and also just incredibly intimate in its sacrifice, right? The two of them are on a mountain apart from everyone else. So there is no other thing here to distract them. It is just the two of them. And that's intense, intimate, personal, vulnerable, all of those things, which is why I think Isaac for me matters so much in the way that this story is interpreted because the assumption is Isaac is somehow victimized, that is okay. I think to read Isaac as a victim is an accurate interpretation. I just think it's better than that. I think there is something more to the story if we go just a little deeper that to me makes the story much richer as a teaching for me right now in my life. Okay, knowing that we have about 10 minutes left, keep questions coming. Um, I want to grab this last sections that we're ready for next week. Speaking of not being afraid of dying, Sarah dies. So let's look at chapter 23. First few verses of chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. This was the length of Sarah's life. And Sarah died at that place near Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham rose up from the bedside, I'm sorry, Abraham rose up from. beside his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a stranger and an alien residing among you. Give me property among you for a burying place so that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you any burial ground for burying your dead. There is a, we'll pause there. And so that's the context for the end of our lesson today abraham and sarah have been through a lot sarah dies at a very healthy old age and abraham wants to bury her well abraham wants her to be buried it says out of his sight the way i read that is you know, not in my backyard but i need her to be somewhere near right i want her to be buried well so this is not just dig a hole this is something that will memorialize her in some meaningful way. And we get that. I think that for most of human history, we liked the idea of if we could afford it, if we were perhaps important enough, we could memorialize our dead. My guess, well, that's not my guess. Um, if If I could put a stab at it, I bet one quarter of the people in this room know with enough detail how they want to be buried and what they want to have happen when they die that it is actionable. And by actionable, I mean, you've actually made at least a somewhat kind of detailed plan. I say about a quarter because that's about how often we engage a family where they seem to have actually understood that they will all die. By the way, we're all gonna die. So part of what I want for us to think about as we read this passage is accepting without the fear that none of us make it out of here alive. So if you have not actually said what you want to be done when you die, Take this as an invitation to do that because there is nothing that is better for a family in the first couple or three days after you die than they know what you want. There is no other gift you can give them. All the estate stuff that you've probably detailed very well, that comes later. When they are sad that you have died, If there is a little sheet of paper that says, you want these two hymns and this verse read and you don't want doves, that is the best thing. Because what is is the worst part about any funeral planning is when family members, often children, but sometimes siblings of the dead, begin to argue about what the person who died would want. Don't do that to people don't do that. You tell them, right? You go write it down somewhere, put it in your wine bottle or stick it under your pillow or whatever. (laughs) Do something that says you like this and you don't like that. Sarah has died and Abraham wants a chance to bury her well in a way that he can then remember her. So he goes to the Hittites and asks them for land. This is an important thing that is true and consistent throughout the whole story. Abraham's not from here. Now, Abraham may have lived here for decades, but as you know, I mean, you, yeah, y'all, you know, if you're not from Texas, you're not from Texas, right? You may have lived here for 80 years. You're still not from here, right? So we know how this is. The Hittites, in a sense, provide this very sweet support for Abraham. They, in a a way, create an anchor, a route for Abraham and his family to be from somewhere. The Hittites are a group of people who, eh, archeologically speaking, really base themselves in what would today be Syria. So this is a little north of Israel, south of Turkey, the Hittites, however, are somehow farther south than that right now, because where Abraham is, is if you think geographically, um, if you've seen a map of Israel and the West Bank, you know how the West Bank looks like a little kidney bean? Um, there's a little, a little nook in the center of the West Bank on the west side that is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in that little nook. Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem, and Hebron, or Mamre, is just south of Bethlehem. So there is a place, Abraham, by the way, will be buried in the same place. We do know where that burial site is. That is a real place, you can go there and you can see the burial site of Sarah and Abraham. Sorry, excuse me. I have not been there, no. I actually, I'm not entirely sure why I haven't been there. That's not intentional. Um, we've just never gone. But it's near Jerusalem, not too far. And the Hittites would have been a little farther away from where their general normal area was. But they are a real group of people. We will see the Hittites come in and out a few times in our story. Um, the Hittites were one of the local groups that challenged Egypt to some land around the time of Ramses II. So think about Moses. So the Hittites are there when the um, Israelites are coming out of Egypt under Moses. The Hittites also come back again as a major trading partner with the um, kingdoms of Israel and Solomon. It's interesting to put, make that note because not every group around Israel during the kingdom period were friendly. But the Hittites were. It's very likely that as they tell this story there's almost a nod to the Hittites as being friends because they would have historically, recently historically, like within a generation or two, have been a friendly trading partner with the Israelite kingdom prior to the exile. And so there is no reason to mention them at all in this moment except that maybe it's just a way of remembering or memorializing that the Hittites were a group of people who have historically been friends to the Jews, to the Israelites. So Abraham goes, buries Sarah. We can visit that spot today. And ultimately, Abraham himself will be buried with her in this spot. When your family is buried somewhere, that does make that place home, right? I mean, that's a, that's a real thing. If you are a transplant somewhere and then you choose to be buried there, there isn't a very real sense, a statement saying, this is my home. Maybe I wasn't born here or raised here, but this is where I will be whether that's an interment or a burial or even a scattering, that's a place that is important to you. And so Abraham has, Abraham's not dead yet, but he's getting there. And so Abraham and Sarah have in a sense made this huge journey, ups and downs in many different ways. They have found themselves in this land. God promised them this land. But remember when we started the story out, I said that even though Abraham receives the promise, Abraham is not going to receive the land. Abraham's descendants receive the land. They receive the actual fulfillment of the promise. Abraham just gets the promise. And yet it's good enough for him to choose to be buried, to bury his wife, and ultimately to have himself buried in this land because the promise is good enough and his faithfulness perhaps is good enough that he knows that his family will, at some point, one day in the future, be there for good. Thank you all.